Welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Comments of the Kino. My name is Louise, and I'm here with Tobias, my co-host, and our first guest, Noah Rosenberg, whom we are going to talk to today about his film, A Moment West. The idea for this podcast came to us in the times of quarantine in April 2020, when we were watching a lot of films and felt like we wanted to take this self-isolating immersion of watching films alone into a more communal or collective conversation. Each episode of this podcast is going to start from an instance within a specific film, and then we are going to take the conversation outwards to the histories that appear in this film that, but that might not be immediately visible. And our conversations are going to be with people who either make films themselves, like Noah, or think about films in writing or costume making or any other kind of medium. And Toby is going to introduce Noah, our first guest, now. Hello, everybody. I'm Toby. And as Louisa said, our first guest is Noah Rosenberg. And he studied art and ecology at the University of California, Davis. And during his studies, focused a lot on painting and sculpture. Now he's currently concentrating on experimental film. In earlier this year in 2020, he founded Ben Film Productions, which focuses on the promotion of contemporary art, artists, and exhibitions. Currently, or he shoots both in digital and analog, and his work's been shown in LA, Davis, and uh, here locally at Wolf Kino in Berlin. Um, he won in 2019 the Telluride Artist Grant, and some of which uh, helped fund the, the film of this episode, A Moment West. And in this episode, we're going to be focusing on kind of three terms or concepts, which are expanse, exposure, and threat. Louise, do you want to start us off? Yeah, these three terms came to mind when watching your film, and but the first scene that we would like to talk about is a multiple exposed scene in which we see a lizard that is on a person's shoulder or sitting on a person's shoulder. And that scene is laid over with a bear running in a snowfield and being chased by two planes or one plane that we see in the other plane, which is apparently the plane and that the scene is taken from. Later, flickering images of illegible writing and fragments of a snowshoe appear overlaid over these two scenes. Can you maybe start by giving us a description of how you constructed that multi-exposed scene? Toby and Louise, thanks so much for having me um, on this podcast. I'm, I'm really honored to be here and excited for this, for this series that, that, you're, that you're planning. Um, and yeah, I think to start off, and I'm I'm really glad that we're focusing on this this particular scene that I think happens um, after the first montage in the film, because I think that this this is kind of a moment in which you can maybe see my artistic process a little bit, and I think. To give some background, I studied painting and sculpture in, in school and also ecology. And I had kind of a moment in school where I realized 
how to how I wanted to create an artwork. Um, and I think the moment really was when I realized that in order for me to create something that was um, in any way successful, I had to kind of let go of a lot of the ideas that I would bring towards something and just kind of react based on um, based on how I was feeling in in that moment. I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about kind of this particular scene and your guys's interest in it. And I'm trying to bring myself to it. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of like, kind of all of my thoughts about painting and sculpture and me studying this and then ecology. And I think that there is a lot in this, in this scene that is kind of a moment in, in which like, my history is kind of brought um, to it. And the way that I construct my art pieces is a lot through trial and error. And yeah. I realized in college that when a professor would tell me to paint something or think about and have a like articulate idea of what the piece was before doing it, it would often not um, be what I wanted it to be. Um, and, and an example is, you know, say we were sitting there drawing in a figure class, um, in a figure drawing class. And I know that those classes are often, you know, it's mostly for technique, um, but at the end of the day, when I would have this portrait of someone that I drew, because I knew that that's what I was drawing, then it wasn't, it, 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 it didn't kind of lift off further than that. Um, mm. And so kind of when I try to create now, I undergo a process of trying to not think about what I want it to be prior to me starting it and then acting more based off kind of my my um a, a deeper feeling inside mm -hmm. and i mean the film uses a lot of found footage is that kind of what you're describing as going through the internet and coming across these images does that help you and in, in 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 using what you find rather than are you allowing your art to go where it goes rather than having this preconceived idea? How does that or maybe you can tell us more about how you go about finding this found footage and maybe talk more about what it does to your work or your process. Yeah. All of the found footage that I used in a moment west was taken from um, a website called the Internet Archive. And in particular, um, there's this professor at UC Santa Cruz um, whose name is Rick Prellinger, and he archives a lot of kind of the San Francisco Bay Area 
um, home videos and also just a lot of like old celluloid prints that have been sitting in people's you know basements that haven't been seen or a lot of government footage that hasn't been scanned and he's been um, undergoing this big project of 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 scanning these these prints and then putting them up for public domain on his webs on on um, it's called the Prelinger Archive, but it's also hosted on the Internet Archive, which is this amazing um, space of a bunch mm. of public domain media. And I think that I started using found footage mostly because I remember um, it was actually in Telluride when I first started making these these short little films and. Um, we were there in the winter, and I think I also didn't really have a camera to use, and but I really was inspired by a lot of the experimental films and films at large. Um, towards the end of my uh, college days, my brother uh, worked at the San Francisco Cinematheque, and he would take me to these screenings and... My, you know, after studying painting and sculpture, my mind totally opened up to the possibility of film. And very quickly, um, after, you know, watching a lot of the old great narrative films with him at places like Bantha and, you know, different old movie theaters that show more, you know, older film, he kind of opened my eyes and the San Francisco Cinematheque opened my eyes to the whole world of experimental film. So I think simultaneously with this new appreciation for cinema, um, which I knew very little about towards the end of college, I was also hit with, um, with the whole world of experimental cinema. Yeah. Like if if you're saying you kind of studied painting and focused on painting at the time that you came around to film and then kind of, I remember as we were in Telluride, you didn't have a camera, but you had, and like at that time you were still working a lot with painting, like throughout the day and thinking about kind of how these like already available images online, like through the internet archive became a kind of medium of painting kind of transforming into like your current film make practice i think that's i think that's a really good kind of introduction to the way you're thinking about these like multi-layered scenes and how you're constructing um this shot of that we really liked of the bear and the lizard yeah, the whole idea of recycling footage um, and creating experimental film, I was I was just kind of being exposed to, um, and you know, with people like Arthur Jaffa and Craig Baldwin, and yeah. these these spaces in 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 the Bay Area, and also Bruce Bailey. Um, kind of seeing these films for the first time and realizing that images can also act as colors or 
I can I can approach moving image and snippets of these moving symbols similarly to how I approach you know colors on a canvas and I can I can open up an editing software on my computer and play with them in a similar way and I think one you know because these I I was I was seeing these films and they kind of showed me that 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 was possible um so yeah I think one I'm 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 still in the midst in in the midst of this um transition right now between painting and filmmaking and it's not really even a transition because I'm still painting a lot and thinking about sculpture a lot um but I'm I'm thinking a lot about how my artistic process relates to moving image and constructing a film because they are very different. Um, a painting and a sculpture is very still. And, you know, with, with, with filmmaking, you add the element of time um, and, yeah. you know, narration and like telling a story, uh, which, yeah, which is a very different uh, element to add. Yeah, one thing that I, I also was thinking about just as you were saying this is how I think the film, especially, especially these like double or triple exposures and the, the colors that you use in your film and that are yeah really important for setting the overall tone or mood that does I, I can I can definitely see your painterly side in those aspects but then also thinking about how you are coming from painting which is such a manual medium but then now with this like experimental filmmaking you are using the internet so much in this film which I think on the surface seems very yeah it's it's analog um and it's it's very much in nature most of the time but then it still has this like internet background and as you were talking about kind of the temporality of film I was also thinking about the temporality of the the internet and how we live in a time where literature and painting and filmmaking all have to kind of come to terms with this parallel existence on the internet and I think it's interesting how you're bringing these three or how you're bringing painting, filmmaking and the internet together um, and then thinking about, yeah, temporality and maybe also what that allows in terms of reflecting on what the internet is or how it affects our own sense of temporality. Yeah, no, I mean, I think also one element of the internet is its overwhelmingness. <laughs> um, yeah. I think as an artist, uh, you know, when you go on a place like the Internet Archive and there's just thousands and thousands of old, old films um, that you can scroll through and, and look at for, for, for content, it, it's, it's, it's very overwhelming because um, I think one of the things that pushes people to to create 
is like the limit and constraints um, constraints and I think that you know it's hard sometimes to pick something when there's a sea of things in which to pick when I think you know one thing that one of my painting teachers taught me is you really want to you know sometimes it's very good to only pick a couple colors and try to make make do with that um, versus, you know, kind of opening yourself to everything. And I think that that there's that struggle with the Internet, too, because, for example, if if a clip isn't working, I always think that I can find another clip or like another gesture of a of a short film that I can, you know, download and use. Um, so then it's like this endless search of trying to find that thing in my imagination when really I think using, you know, placing, placing those limits on yourself is important. Yeah. I'm struck, I'm struck by the kind of way in which your film kind of opens up, uh, a, like parallel mode of thinking between like this kind of overwhelming and what we were identifying as like expansive aspect of nature, which is, I think for uh, like for you and I, or for anyone who has spent a lot of time in the, in the West, there's this kind of immense and wide open beauty of kind of so many different features of the landscape are, kind of there for the ice taking. And I like, I like thinking about how you're also saying that the internet has this overwhelming wide kind of like so many possibilities of what clips you can take and where your attention is drawn. And I think that's, I think that's a really important way of thinking about landscape today because I think I think I I think one has a tendency to kind of contrast technology and like the natural world, but then thinking also how these like kind of parallel structures are actually maybe or parallel kind of um, aesthetic responses of like this overwhelmingness is actually pretty helpful. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the, the landscape and I know that was, um, in the questions that you guys wrote to me. Um, and yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, um, the West and the landscape out here. Um, and I've been reading a lot about its history and, the film is 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 definitely about the landscape and this expansive nature and I think that that clip that you guys are referring to does show you know this this very big expansive expansive landscape um and yeah i'm 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 also trying to think about you know my relationship to to this landscape and I think you know Americans relationship to the landscape and mm. 
I've been reading a lot about how, you know, everything, um, how, how really arid and dry and unlivable, um, the West is. And, and, um. and, and there's this, there's this like danger to it and fright to it. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about manifest destiny and how the American government pushed, um, people to move out, you know, to the West of the, of the Mississippi river, uh, really when they had a lot of knowledge that agriculture and civilization would be very hard to sustain out here. Um, and just thinking about kind of this illusion that was pushed on people to move out here. Um, and then really through intense development of rivers and, you know, agriculture and oil um, is really how how people are able to survive out here. And as soon as you kind of turn off those taps, uh, major cities will just crumble. And so there's, 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 a, there's a frailty to that, I think. Um, but, you know, wrapped up in that is also this, this idea of hope, this idea that there's a lot of land out here and that everyone can, you know, have their piece of it. Um, yeah. but really if we take away these resources, um, that people depend on, which are very, you know, they're, they're running out and they've been mechanized, um, then our cities will just crumble out here. Yeah. That you, you kind of talking about this expanse and how it, it is threatening, like as in the scene of the bear chase. I think for me, the most threatening thing about that chase is the bear is in this white snowfield and he's running away from these planes that are faster than him. Um, and he has nowhere to run because it's this plane that offers no hiding spots, no change of landscape. And there are other scenes, I think, in your film where that expands and how threatening that can be is also is also how threatening and beautiful actually it can be is also recorded like i remember this person like standing in a field and being surrounded by by yeah basically nothing or in like on like this plateau and the wind blowing i remember that very strongly um but then toby and i also talked a lot about the skiers in your film mm -hmm. because that's also you people going to Colorado Telluride specifically to kind of use the expanse for recreational purposes and yeah. finding finding a freedom that like especially I think us living in Europe we notice all the time that we don't have that freedom of expanse mm -hmm. um, but then maybe at the same time and this maybe goes back to your background in ecology possibly destroying that landscape and i think watching this the scene of the skiers um and thinking about you making this film while you were in telluride 
which is so heavily impacted by this kind of recreational tourism. We're also wondering if that played a role in the film or, yeah, how are you yeah, thinking about no, that? No, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, going to school, I was, I was, and, I, you know, Toby also experienced this, but there's, there's this attitude towards outdoor recreation um, in California and I think like throughout uh, America and mm-hmm. probably throughout the West. And it's this attitude of, and it, 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 it dates back to, you know, the, to the whole idea of like Western expansion. Um, it's this attitude that we can, you know, the land is out there and we can conquer it or we can climb to the top of the mountain and ski down it. Um, and, and, you know, through our, through our human abilities, uh, we can just play with these, these great things like 14,000 foot peaks. Um, and there isn't, I think like a lot of the people that I knew that were on the skiing teams at my school or a lot of the attitudes that people take with them to this remote town of, of Telluride is it's, it's kind of like a party attitude. Um, Telluride as this town, you know, it's, we've built this little town that we've siphoned water and food into and people can fly into and then people can just treat nature as uh, something that they can dominate. And uh, that, I think that's, that's always been very disturbing to me. Um, There isn't a respect for it during these recreational activities. Um, I think it's viewed often as something that, yeah, we can just like, play with um but if you but yeah and and the only reason that that's the case is is because we've built this infrastructure in which to do that and i think people have lost um a sense of respect for 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 these places yeah yeah the way that like skiing has it kind of assumes an unlimited ability to move through the landscape. And as you said, kind of go to the top of the mountain and go to the bottom of the mountain very quickly. Um, I think that's, that's definitely a kind of rehearsal of what you're saying about this kind of larger tradition of um, manifest destiny, kind of a God-given right to, kind of move through and possess the landscape. Um, And I think, I think it's important to think about that, like in your film for me, thinking about these kind of shots of the skiers and then at the same time thinking about these kind of wide open iconic shots of whether it's in the bear scene with the snow or these wide open shots of the kind of high desert plateaus. Um, yeah, that have a very iconic Western 
um, appearance. I remember taking these walks with, with you, Toby, through Telluride, and, you know, we would see these houses that were nestled into kind of the foot of the mountains, and there are these big <clears throat> modern glass houses, and these, you know, very wealthy people would fly into Telluride, and they would, you know, you would you would feel the altitude, but that's the only real thing that you would feel as kind of this dangerous place in which that you've entered um, because we've built these concrete glass structures to surround us and to shield us from the elements um, and and really from what it's what it's like to to live out there and I think that that shielding that's that's undergoing is um, it's it's causing people to lose respect for the mountains and for nature in general um and i think that loss of respect is then materialized in you know sport and skiing um i mean also just the idea that you know you can you can fly into these remote towns you can experience the grandeur of nature you can go to the top of the peak and ski down and then you can go and have, you know, a big buffet lunch. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's this fabricated world um, that is stripping people of their uh, relationship to the natural world. Yeah. How do you see your film, on one hand, engaging um, those other types of people that are engaging with Telluride because, and then also how is your film engaging the landscape? Like, would you, how would you, or how would you articulate, um, like if their form of recreation is described in this kind of invasive way, how, how are you, how do you think about, taking footage of the landscape and looking at it and how are you yeah how are you conceptualizing in relation to this kind of consuming right consumption of of the landscape yeah yeah but yeah i think that that brings up um an idea of because i think one one big different i mean one one major difference between painting and filmmaking is that with filmmaking and with photography, and I think this was a question that you guys wrote down, um, this idea of exposure and how the camera is seemingly, and, you know, historically as well, the idea around the camera is that it captures what is out there. Um, And it's, it's, it captures reality for other people to see. And in a way that that that's that's a very violent idea, um, in the sense that you can just you know point your camera at something and and um, capture everything that that thing is through the that 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 can be put onto a photograph and then um, shown to people. And I think that one thing that I've been struggling with is 
um, you know, when you, when you take a camera out into the world, people often don't want, or people shield away from it. Um, I think even, even when we're on, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, um, the whole zoom world, because I think a lot of people turn off their cameras, uh, partly because they don't want to see their faces, um, because they kind of associate any camera with like being truth. Um, whereas painting and sculpture, um, at least for like a big portion of its history, didn't doesn't doesn't try to make those claims um so so yeah i think that's 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 definitely you know and i i don't i don't necessarily believe that that's true um i don't i don't think that a photograph bears more truth than a painting um, but it's just, it's just taken up as that. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I feel like that also, what that brings up for me, and I think that's, for me, it is an unanswered question of kind of what is, what would be nonviolent seeing? Because I think making an image or traveling in order to see something is so close to a consumption of it. Um, yeah, that, and I think I was just, maybe this is a random thought, but Toby and I, like two weeks ago, watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire that is about painting, but it's also about seeing or watching and being watched. And at some point, the woman who is always sitting for the portrait is saying to the painter, um, who she's falling, she's, they're falling in love, um, the painter and her model. And the model is saying at some point, when you look at me, I also look at you. I look back at you. But I feel like with the bear, for example, or the lizard, or nature in general, the question is like, are they looking back? They They are in some ways, but... yeah. I think it's also easy for us, or for some reason, it's always easy for the person holding the camera or for the person painting to forget that they are also being looked at and being changed in yeah. the act of looking. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think this idea of looking to um, is very wrapped up in, in science. Um, and in, in kind of, you know, the white and Western way of, of being in the world. Um, and I think, yeah, thinking about this idea of looking and photography um, and filmmaking, um, I wanted to bring up that I was, I was actually very, and I, this is related to, to my science background, um, I was very disappointed with my ecology education at, at, at school. Um, I felt that towards the end of it, I just felt that science as a method wasn't really working um, for helping me understand relationships and, you know, 
in particular with ecology, which is the study of how life interacts with each other. Um, and I think that, that that's related to photography and looking because I felt that there was a lot, I think Western science does a lot of trying to be objective and, you know, place something at a distance and isolate it and then try to classify it and classify um, its relationship with other things. Um, and that that doesn't and, and it it doesn't bring in one's own relationship with that thing. Um, and I felt that, you know, in school, I was I, I felt I was mostly asked to just memorize things and not ask questions and that there was like a big Bible of information and dogma that was truth. Um, and I think and, you know, for me to just memorize that and that's that's what ecology is. Um, whereas with art, it was a whole different way of being and with the humanities, you know, uh, you engage with the thing that you're studying, you, you know, it, it changes you, it isn't defined by a photograph or a word, um, it's constantly opens itself up for interpretation. And there's no, you know, one right answer to it. There's no one name to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think just I I think just first off it's it's interesting that you kind of started our conversation with talking about how you kind of tr when you're conceiving of a piece or beginning a piece you have to you're you're always trying to kind of put aside your kind of preconceived notions of something and i think that's i think and in other words you're putting kind of forward this personal engagement this not this non um objective engagement with something and i think that goes to Say how maybe in your artistic medium you're complicating your own kind of relationship to ecology or at least the one that's been um, instilled in, within your education and I think I think something that I wanted to ask about um, was your relationship to Paul Clipson and if you've seen his films that he made while working with the San Francisco Exploratorium, um, because like that's, that's also a science institution that kind of is based upon this model that you're kind of talking about, which is the classification and kind of, objectification of species and of um like yeah individual mechanisms within individual organisms and then paul clipson while he was working with them made these films about kind of the unconscious of these natural objects or which are 
in science considered objects. And I think, I don't know. I, I, I think that's interesting. That has an interesting relationship to your film. Yeah, no, I, um, Paul was, was one of the major influences of, of my, and I think will be one of the major influences of my like pivot, um, post-college and towards the end of college of my artistic process. Um, and yeah, I saw, you know, I, I think, I don't know if he, the whole exploratorium grant and residency that he did. Um, I don't know if he did it because of, because the exploratorium is a science, you know, I, in in other words, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure like why he did that residency besides that it was just an artist residency for him to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, if the science element was attracting him or not, but yeah, I, I, I saw his, his film Blackfield, which was a live, uh, 16 millimeter and, um, performance with with live music and that that really influenced me um i also i interviewed him towards the end of school um which is something that i'm keep kicking myself because i need to edit that and like send it to people <laughs> because it, it's it's this great conversation that my brother and i had with him but it's just sitting on a hard drive um and needs to be like reopened. But yeah, I think one one thing Paul told me was that um for him and he uses a ton of different exposures. I think he layers like infinite times um because he uses the the Bolex camera but also um, a Nikon R10 Super 8, which allows you to superimpose in the camera. You just physically roll back the film. And I, and one thing he told me was that, um, for him, as soon as you understood, as I think with photography, it's very easy. And with filmmaking, it's very easy when the camera points at something for the viewer to then look at whatever object it is pointing at and to classify it and to say, oh, that's a chair or that's a window or that's a person, right? And I think what that does to us is it demystifies those objects. Um, And that's kind of sad because I think all of all of the objects out in the world are way more expansive than the labels that we put on them. Um, And I think our Western way of looking at things um, dulls them down even more. And I think part of the, the beauty in what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to take these things and blur them and put them together and often crop them um, so that you can't recognize these objects. Um, You know, you're, 
you're watching his films and you're constantly trying to place meaning because you know that it's a film, but you can't necessarily, it's moving so fast um, sometimes um, that you can't necessarily place meaning on a lot of his objects. Um, and I think that like lifted a lot of these objects um, out of classification. And I think also um, once you stop trying to place meaning on those objects and kind of you relinquish that feeling, you're allowed to just take in these images as shapes and colors, and then they kind of become something else. So I think, I think him explaining that to me, and I did a very poor job of like trying to explain what, what how, how he did it, um, or how he talks about it. But I think that was like a big moment for me because that also bridged the gap between, or not bridged the gap, but um, helped me understand my love of painting and sculpture, which doesn't necessarily try you know, to place direct meaning on things like photography does, or not that, not that photography tries to place direct meaning, but it's just taken in that way. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think Paul's way of, you know, taking a light in a window and then having it move alongside of a train and then you don't actually, you aren't able to fully like place those objects in a certain scene. And then yeah. when he does place an object, like maybe he'll do a close up of a spider, um, that causes you because you've you've lifted off of this state of trying to analyze it and you don't really care about analyzing it anymore. You're allowed to look at maybe the stillness of, you know, a spider say that he does a close-up on and that stillness um, expands because he's already brought you to that state if that makes sense yeah I think what you were just saying what I was thinking about in relation to your film just as you were just describing kind of this how Clipson like alters images that we would otherwise just see and maybe not look closer not really take in also make me think of how in your own film a moment west there are several scenes where that are repeated and where then like the speed is altered which is in some ways like different from what you were describing in clipson because it's so or i guess you were describing clipson how sometimes it's very fast and in your film, what struck both Toby and I was there were scenes that were really slow and looped. Like there is this person or this man on a horse um, who's like dressed in Native American or Native American-ish mm -hmm. um, costume. And he's writing and greeting, apparently like greeting an audience and he's writing into like this theater. And that scene is looped um, and also slowed down. Um, the scene of the bear chase is also repeated and slowed down. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of, for me, I think this, the alteration of the tempo 
made especially the bear scene but also that scene with the guy on the horse more threatening maybe because I was forced to watch them over and over again and I was kind of yeah I was I really noticed the the altered speed um yeah and I was I was yeah I was wondering if you think about these scenes maybe also in the terms that you were talking about with Paul Clipson and then wondering if you could talk more about the rhythm of of these of, of these scenes and maybe they also I don't know if they have to do with your musical side or yeah yeah um yeah I think you know again th there there's no um direct reason why I'll slow down or speed up any particular clip um it's really how I feel it's working if it, if 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 I feel that it needs to be s slowed down, then I slow it down. And I know that that's not a very satisfying answer, but I think that it kind of, um, it kind of relates back to what I said previously, which is just that, um, you know, again, film as this, as this, film and photography as this idea of like truth and reality yeah. and that as soon as you watch you know a clip of video you kind of take it to be a real life thing that's happening or that you yeah. know, and or, or or that did happen um and i think when you manipulate the film um you kind of show its physical properties in a way, or you allow the viewer to struggle with that idea of reality. Um, and I yeah. think that's kind of what I tried to do a little bit. I tried to open up the conversation of, um, of what it means to watch a film or what it means to look at a photograph. And I, th yeah. and I think that, um, I'm really hesitant not to like abuse that because I, I think one criticism that I got from a moment West and I think kind of how my artistic process works and, you know, something that I'm trying to work with and through is that I do really try to blur um, my art pieces in order to see them more clearly um, or in order to see a direction that I want to go. Like often with my paintings, I'll stand back from them um, and I'll try to, you know, squint and see something and have an idea come to me or I'll, I'll like turn the canvas and, you know, try to go down more the route of abstraction and in order for my mind to kind of lift itself from a lot of, you know, from preconceived ideas or language, all of this stuff. And I think that double exposure is one of those techniques that I, that I use. Um, and I think that Paul Clipson also, you know, um, just the idea that Paul, for example, doesn't know what his films will look like when he's shooting them because he uses a Super 8 camera. Um, 
So, but whereas I can actually see the double exposure play through because I'm working digitally. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm trying to blur. I'm trying to see if, if any interesting thing would happen if I take a clip and double expose it on another clip, you know, will there be a form that's created that tells me more or not, not tells me more, but like brings up an interesting point, um, that, that maybe I wouldn't have seen if I don't try to blur that. Um, and I, and, and I think I want to be hesitant moving forward with that because I think that, um, you know, every, like even, even just not blurring that and having, having montages right next to each other, um, without double exposing, you know, the order in which you place those clips can also, um, bring about a very, you know, profound idea at the end. And you don't, you don't always have to just, you know, rub things onto the canvas and, and, you know, try to like (laughs) blur things and look back and, um, intentionally like, uh, stir the pot. I think you can do, do things more slowly and, um, still like, still just shoot, for example, a still chair, um, but then have those feelings also come to you when you're watching it. And I think that's, that's something that, uh, Dorsky, Nathaniel Dorsky has, has shown me as well. I think just, you know, just through, um, still shots of the world you can also feel this experience of expansion yeah yeah i think you're drawing attention to a really important balancing point between this one te- this one technique that like as you said in the chair i think of like stating things plainly and kind of going back to what you're saying before this like purporting truth maybe if you're stating things plainly and then this other tendency that distorts things in order to see them more clearly um and I'm wondering about the way that that is, I think, a, bi- a big part of the threat that I felt when I watched your film was the chasing of this bear and how that is this direct confrontation between animal and human and the unfair relation that's set up in using a plane and a camera against this bear in an open landscape. And then that sense of threat returns with the imagery of this elk. And that, and the blood and the bones and the the skin. It's this very it's this visceral visceral imagery and i think that 
I think there's a kind of connection between these the threat that is kind of imposed on nature and maybe also this we have this immense interest for nature but then there's also in our interest we threaten it and I think something similar can be set up in the way that you're thinking about the reality and the viewer's reality and how you're kind of maybe taking things apart and disassembling them in order to see them more clearly. Yeah. Um, I'm really sure if there's a question there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 um, Sorry. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think what's interesting about that clip with the bear too um, is it's an incredibly violent clip. The entire clip, which I think is like 30 minutes long. And it's it's basically of these two planes that are hunting bears um, in probably the Arctic. And there are these shots of the men on the plane and just their smiles and like complete lack of appreciation for this beautiful animal. Um, And, you know, it actually shows them like killing the bear, skinning the bear, um, a really gruesome clip and i was really disturbed and and sickened from it um and i think yeah that relates to this to the elk that i saw because i think it it relates to just well they're similar but they're also different it's interesting because the plane scene it's this direct launch of of humans of men you know trying to kill this animal and this elk um was actually i think it was i i passed it on a road in colorado and it was lying in a you know snowy meadow um and i think it was killed by you know probably a wolf or or, or i'm 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 not sure how it died um but i don't think it was killed by humans but but at the same time you know so it was this kind of natural death um but at the same time there was this big road that was right next to it and a lot of people were just passing it and it kind of made me think of you know roadkill or just these 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 cars that just drive through uh nature and don't really pay attention to it and i think that there's violence on both ends of that um there's there's violence in the way that we have gone out to try to destroy um nature and then there's violence in our blindness of driving past it while it while it 
dies. Yeah. And that's also, I feel like that's the kind of violence that we all have to live with, maybe more than we had, than we would have had to a hundred years ago. Like, I'm thinking about Toby, who's doing a lot of research on these, like, early 20th century safaris right now, hmm. when people would go and hunt in the European colonies in, in Africa, and they would also, yeah, they would they would go and hunt elephants there or something and that's a very that's a very privileged form of direct violence and i feel like now what we all have to come to terms with and i think especially our generation has to think about um in terms of or has to has to think about constantly our own impact which is weirdly passive but at the same time very active that we have upon the destruction of the environment yeah through consumption traveling and it's it's much less direct than these kinds of hunting scenarios and that's i think the kind of the opposition between driving and roadkill which is kind of a byproduct of getting somewhere mm-hmm. and hunting which is nowadays leisure and a decision, a hobby, but driving isn't. <laughs> driving yeah. is a decision, but it's not necessarily a hobby. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I yeah. think one thing also is I'm I'm trying to come to terms with. I think, you know, there's 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 us trying to make our own personal decisions about how to act in the world based off all the knowledge that we read. Um, you know, and in particular, we're talking about the ways in which we can act, um, you know, for the environment. But I think I'm also trying to come to terms with um, our, this, this, this unconscious thing, the, the unconscious ways in which we've all grown up to conceptualize um, the world and nature um and i think it's very harmful a lot of the things that we that are inside of us um and i guess i'm speaking for myself and kind of reflecting on um even language that we use um as and and our like very strong belief in science um and yeah just like the attitude that that we bring with ourselves when we go on a hike or when we ski um or yeah when we drive um there isn't you know every day that we live in the west in its system we lose and we we are consumed by um how we're living and the thoughts in which we get based on how we're living. Um, And I think that that's like, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's difficult because when I go for, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm really curious um, right now. I've, I've I've been reading a lot about, um, you know, farmers and peasants and 
Native Americans and just everything from the language that they use to um, their resistance to uh, classifying something and um, also just, yeah, the knowledge that they have. Um, and I think it's so much greater than any of the knowledge that people that grow up in cities have about their environment. And I think that as someone who grew up in a city and who has a deep interest in the landscape and in, you know, nature, um, I've really been robbed of that experience and of that knowledge, which can't be gained back because it's, you know, it's generational. And um, my education in ecology, I felt that it, it didn't at all tell me about these processes and um, yeah, and the natural world. So yeah, I'm, I think one way that I can engage and learn about, about the world around me is through art and through, um, you know, studying, um, creativity. Yeah. And also it sounds like a big part of your practices kind of digging into these unconscious learned assumptions that we have learned in science or in other forms of education and you're kind of coming back through uh with your yeah with your work um yeah to maybe end the episode um I think your film, Maturbi and I, besides talking about humans and nature, humans and animals and exposure and expanse and threat, the larger theme that we were always coming back to was your preoccupation that's also apparent in the title with kind of the American West that is connoted often as a place of longing for a better less constrained life, maybe, as you were talking about Manifest Destiny. But this longing is then also the first step towards settlement and expansion, and you also mentioned that. Um, and to us, yeah, we wanted to ask you if there are any specific stories or artworks or ideas that you think about in relation to the West and ask you what this like fantasy or imagination means to you. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, uh, I think that there are a lot um, of artwork and ideas, um, but I don't know. It's also interesting growing up in Los Angeles where it's kind of like the end of the West, you know, it's literally the moment in which the West hits the Pacific Ocean. Um, and that's kind of a whole nother subject my 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 kind of fascination with with LA um but yeah recently I've been I've been I've been really interested in water history in the west um I'm reading a book called Cadillac Desert um and that's been a very big source of inspiration for me um to kind of learn the history of 
of how people settled here um, and kind of the frailty on on which they're settling. Um, but yeah, I think also growing up in LA, um, LA kind of reaches the the this this nexus of um, of the West because it's it's you know this this illusion of of a better place and then that that you know everything west of the Mississippi the government was telling people you know go west there's there's you know farms and it's you know there's land blah 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 and then when you hit los angeles it's the end but then it's also the biggest city of illusion in itself through you know the entertainment industry and hollywood um so it's it's it kind of launches manifest destiny um to another level of like uh fantasy and it's it's also a city that um as soon as you turn off the water would just disappear into a desert uh which which is interesting um but yeah i don't know i've 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 been thinking a lot about water and landscape um and yeah like films um and then kind of bringing it back to my relationship with growing up in Southern California. Um, and yeah, my relationship to, to the West as well. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's very, I think apparent in this film and definitely interested to see also how maybe your next films are going to take it more, even more West because this film is so, yeah, more like Telluride. But now as you're talking about LA, I'm interested to see how your preoccupation with these themes is going to take shape there. Yeah, and I, I think I also wanted to add that with the title, because you, you brought up the title, and I also want to, I don't know, I want to be very careful not to try to make, I think a lot of my artwork, I'm... I try to be very careful not to make any harsh claims about anything. Um, and I think because, you know, uh, again, it's, it's, it's this idea of trying to push back from science. It's the idea of trying to push back from us seeing a chair and saying, that's just a chair. Um, and I called it a moment because it's really, you know, that's what it, that's what this film is. And I think that's what, everything is to a certain extent. Um, but I tried in my artwork to, um, offer up just a, a thing in which, um, I'm not trying to say anything grand and hopefully, um, people can look at it from multiple angles and, you know, it can serve as just maybe a historical thing of like, this was just one person's thoughts on, you know, living in, in, in Colorado and traveling and working there. Um, and, you know, then it has the ability for that thing to expand. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good way of kind of for us. It, it's helpful for us thinking about the future also of our podcast. Um, is we kind of conceived of it as this with like every episode having an intense focus on like a specific scene or detail motif something that we can kind of grab onto in a a given film and i really like how this podcast has made me think differently about the moment and how kind of this phrase that using a chair isn't a chair or a chair isn't just a chair. Maybe it is a chair, but what else is it? Um, and I think you, I, I think I witnessed that kind of in the unfolding of the podcast. Like we wanted to talk about this threatening scene of the bear and this wide open landscape and the various kind of filmic um, techniques that you've used to layer the image, different exposures. And yet at the same time, that kind of moment that we were latching onto is itself kind of giving way to the conversation. And yeah, so I think we're really grateful for this episode yeah thank you for interviewing with us (laughs) yeah no i thanks for thanks for having me